Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt, and we have a new video up on YouTube. This week, we're taking a look at some suburban botany. Now, these plants that we see are considered invasive in a lot of contexts, but we're taking a step back from that typical conversation and looking at just a small handful of species that have adapted incredibly well to the human environment. Many of these you'll probably be quite familiar with, and uh, it was a fun... It was a really fun video to make. There's a couple guest appearances from some friends there, and... You know, it's not just suburban plants. You'll see these in a lot of human landscapes, especially in urban areas. So go over to YouTube.com, check it out, and if you enjoy it, make sure to look at our other videos and hit that subscribe button. Also, do you have an aching botanical or ecological question that you're dying to have answered? Send me an email, indefensiveplants at gmail.com, because I am gearing up to do another question episode. I don't know when it's going to happen. Essentially, it'll just be whenever I get enough questions to make a good show. But yeah, let me know what's bugging you. I will do my best to answer in the most accurate way possible, and when I don't know the answer, I'll make up something that sounds satisfying. Alright, what do I have for you this week? Actually, this is a super interesting topic, and one that's kind of near and dear to my heart, mostly because it involves an orchid. Joining us today are two researchers from the University of Washington. They are in the Riffle Lab. We have Chloe Lahander. She is a postdoctorate in the lab. And Rio Okubo. He is a graduate student in the lab. And both of them are studying the pollination ecology of Platanthera obtusata. It's a beautiful little orchid with these greenish flowers that's native to much of northern North America uh, and western North America. It's got a pretty large range and it is pollinated by mosquitoes. Now, this isn't the only plant in the world that is pollinated by mosquitoes. As you find out, mosquitoes are somewhat regular plant visitors. Whether or not they actually are effective pollinators is a different story, and I'm going to let these two get into that. But this is a tag team podcast, and it was really fun talking to these two because they're attacking this topic from two very different angles. Chloe herself is very interested in the thermobiology and physiology, as well as like the neural pathways that go into understanding how mosquitoes sense different kinds of scents in their environment. And Rio is looking at the chemical ecology of what the plant is producing and how these mosquitoes act as effective pollinators in the wild. It's super cool work and something you really should sit down and listen to. You know, I personally don't enjoy mosquitoes. We have plenty of the invasive tiger mosquitoes in our backyard right now. And uh, you should see my ankles. It's disgusting. I get chewed alive. But it's important to remember that there are a lot of different species of mosquitoes out there and not all of them bite. Many of them do not need a blood meal and uh, most of them are just harmless nectar feeders. So when you start seeing blog posts and different articles about eliminating mosquitoes from the environment, you, you, you have to realize that that would cause ramifications throughout the ecosystem. Before we get to that conversation, a few orders of business to take care of. If you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support it, please head on over to patreon.com slash plants and see what we got going on over there. For a little bit of money each month, you can get yourself stickers, access to the VIP section of the indefensiveplants.com website, and for those of you looking to give a little bit more, you can even get yourself a producer credit on this show. For instance, today's episode is produced in part by Alan, Shane, Amy, Caitlin, Rosanna, Mary Jane, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, Christopher, Sienna and Garth, Margie, Laura, and Mark. So thank you to everyone who has given thus far. It really does help, and it really means a lot to me that you enjoy this podcast enough to support it. If money isn't your thing, which I completely understand, at the very least consider subscribing to and reviewing this podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to download it. Reviews not only help me make a better podcast for you, 
They also help Indefensive Plants reach a wider audience. So anytime you scroll down on iTunes or whatever it is and it says recommended podcast, the podcatcher is using your reviews to help send out recommendations to other folks who may not know Indefensive Plants exists. And the whole goal of Indefensive Plants, after all, is to spread the love of botany around the globe, doing its little part in its little niche to cure plant blindness for the general public. I'd like to think Indefensive Plants has made a good stab at that thus far, and with your help, we can reach even more people. All right, that's enough rambling from me. Let's head on over my conversation with Chloe and Rio. I hope you enjoy. All right, so both of you, it's been a while since I've tagged you to podcast, but welcome. Uh, let's start with some introductions. I don't know or care who goes first, but take it away. Okay. Hi, uh, I'm Chloe. Um, I'm a, a postdoc uh, here at the University of Washington in the Department of Biology. Uh, we are both in the Riffel Lab, um, and I'm working on orchids, but also like uh, thermal stress. Um, learning and memory, but always de- dealing with uh, disease vector insects, um, and and that's it, I guess. <laughs> uh, I'm Rio. Uh, I'm Rio Kubo. Uh, I'm a graduate student in the Riffle Lab in uh, UW, UW Biology, and uh, um, I'm studying. I'm, I'm focused on the pollination biology, mosquito pollination of these orchids. Uh, my background. I have some background in. Um, chemical ecology or, and also, um, yeah, olfaction related stuff and, uh, kind of segued into this with, um, kind of figure out how, how to find, uh, olfactory neurobiology in that ecological setting. That's awesome. You both bring some really unique, uh, backgrounds to this kind of research. And it's really fascinating that what you're doing inevitably evol- involves, uh, pollination of what is oddly a very underrepresented or at least lesser known pollinator, the mosquito, in a system of some of the most unique plants in the world, the orchids. Uh, what the heck? What, how, does, how do you all find yourself in the same lab? I guess is a good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Um, would you like to... So, basically, the Riffel Lab is oriented, like right now, people are working on mosquitoes, but also on moths, on bees. So it's quite a, you know, large um, setup. A set of insects, uh, and we work on like their, you know, ecology, neurobiology. Um, so we have like a diversity of techniques, but also models. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it. Yeah. Like, I think yeah. For for me, like at least, I, I feel like it's a good fit for me when I joined this lab because uh, uh, I had an ecology background initially, and then I graduated and moved on to a technician. And I kind of wanted to put these two together. And uh, I guess like how I would describe a lab is we would we try to understand the neurobiology of the organism within the context of how they perceive their environment and how they interact with their environment. So that's the kind of the ecology mm-hmm. aspect of our lab, I would say. Awesome. And I, it's wonderful to see such different types of science, at least, uh, getting together and working in a collaborative way in the same lab. Um, and it's really fascinating that you chose pollination as kind of this this realm for you guys to start focusing in your your talents and combining them. Um, so I guess let's start from the most, I guess, zoomed in aspect is just how plants use chemicals to attract insects and how those olfactory setups in these insects 
uh, you know, is so attuned to flowers because that's that's a big step in in plant evolution was the evolution of flowers and insect pollination, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do we begin? <laughs> it's such a we could probably have a whole podcast about just that, but you know, what are plants making and how are pl- are are insects detecting it? So um, I would say that plants create a lot of different chemicals to attract different pollinators, um, and they are very diverse. But some of them are like sharing some chemicals in common. Um, there is also a um, morphological aspect. It's not only you know the scent of the plant, but it's also the morphology, which is also important to match with the morphology of the pollinator. So it's a combination of these two uh, aspects, which is important, um, I would say. Yeah, I guess from the flower, the flower or the plant end, it's more like a biochemical process. And it's, my understanding is that depending on how where they cut off cut off the biochemistry they, that kind of lead, leads to a diverse array of different flowers with different scents and then and then what happens is I guess there's like a scent the sensory drive hypothesis of like an insect having some kind of some kind of a, is sensitive essentially to some kind of some of these chemicals already and then maybe that matches up so that's where maybe like mimicry and like orchid mimicry and stuff like that comes too where it really like they're the the plan is really just just trying to be like the best advertisement that it could be mm-hmm. in that and just trying to and the and then like how the natural selection works is then like if it fits and hits really like what a, like an insect is interested in um, and that that is that is reflected in the neurobiology such as like the, with the olfactory receptors that are expressed in the antennae and stuff like that and basically how that it's a very inter- interesting because like yeah like to the they're completely two different processes coming together to match into this kind of like interaction that is then beneficial, ideally beneficial um, to both organisms and just kind of move forward. And of course it's not just like a happy makeup. It's always kind of like a push and pull between the two species of how much like from the flower and how much sugar they provide and from the insect is like, like which flowers are best for them to get the best number of, like, amount of nectar or pollen. So it's a very interesting yeah. like match that mm. resource resources and stuff like that. And they also use like colors. Yeah, um, visual, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah vision visual. is also like an important component yeah. of this process. So. I mean, it's worked for humans, right? That's what's uh, got us to spread so many species around the globe. But I, I like that you painted this picture that it's not this, you know, kumbaya sort of, oh, we're working together. It's each party is trying to get as much without giving too much in return, right? It, it's this dynamic, and like you said, there's a lot of instances of sort of this chicken or an egg in which role uh, or which selected pressures are the strongest, but in their end, the end result is a lot of times we get these very specific pollinator syndromes where, you know, a handful of specialized insects or maybe even a handful of species or fewer per flower species at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's right. I mean, yeah. especially for kids. Yeah. Or the yeah. other Right, whenever you read a paper on the, the speciation or any sort of adaptive radiation in orchids, it inevitably comes back to, well, the morphology or some sort of volatile chemical changed and that allowed a different suite of pollinators and then isolation. And it, it really is at the center of the diversity of that group. Um, but going back a little bit on what you guys had brought up earlier, is just that there's a lot of chemical cues a lot of them are very specific, and there's a lot of visual cues, and some of them we can't even detect with our own eyes. So I would assume that the 
the world of flower attractants is much richer uh, in the eyes and in the sense organs of an insect than it is oftentimes for us, no? Yes, yeah. I guess, I mean, when you sm- smell a flower, uh, people have these, like, flowers that like, they like to smell. But it's, uh, it, it, yeah, you, you, it's definitely not the same for the insect. They could be smelling the same flower, but they ha- probably have completely different olfactory receptors that the perception of it is yeah. different, yeah. They might be able to smell some volatiles that we don't, and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and the opposite. And also it's the case for, you know, flowers that are uh, emitting some uh, UV so mm-hmm. this is something that we also can, you know, yeah. see like, like CO2, yeah. like, you know, this kind of stuff, we, we can see it or we can smell it. So. so we have to use kind of like the neurobiology and like the behavior to see, how, not, not what they perceive necessarily, but at least how, how they would respond, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. it's always fun to kind of, I guess, I, like, and there's a lot of work on like decoupling, you know, like these different cues, like visual and olfactory. And it's always mm-hmm. really fun to see like the creative ways that these researchers come out with, like how to separate out the cues. And then almost all the time, I guess, is you know, that put they, they put it back together and they realize, oh, the best response is, of course, mm-hmm. it's got multimodal. Like yeah. it, it requires mm-hmm. all the senses for the insect to kind of figure out this is the flower they want. I think this is kind of what we are doing, right? Yeah, that's pretty much what we're doing. We're trying to approach different, yeah, visual yeah. factory. Yeah, so it's really mm-hmm. that. That's the sensory aspect of mm-hmm. it, yeah. The, how do insects things see things and how do the plants catch on to that and provide those kind of sensory yeah, stimuli? Wow. It must be really interesting to go to your lab meetings. I can't imagine the, the, the kinds of papers <laughs> that are floating around and, you know, just the kind of conversations that pop up from time to time and, you know, something that Chloe brings to the table could just open the eyes of someone looking at the volatile sense and vice versa. And it's just this wonderful melding of collaboration that I, I can't help but emphasize is just... And the, and then the picture that you're gaining out of it seems to be pretty um, in-depth and and revealing. So you also focus on, to add another level of uniqueness to your research, is mosquitoes as pollinators. You know, most of us have, you know, I was just out in my backyard getting, donating, you know, pint of blood at least to a bunch of them but we don't generally think of them as uh, as nectar feeders or flower visitors but that's not the case right yeah so um do you want to go no, so yeah female mosquito um mosquitoes need to get access to blood because they need that to produce their eggs um but they also need nectar and males also need nectar um and uh, the reason why is that they need to maintain their metabolism right they need to have um, energy to fly, um, to mate, uh, to, you know, find, uh, find hosts. exactly, or find site to, uh, lay their eggs. So sugar is like very important for mosquitoes. And you even have some mosquitoes that are not feeding on blood at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, the toxalanchitis, um, mosquitoes, the, the elephant mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. they are only feeding on nectar. They never like you know, feed on blood. And and those we, guys are awesome too. Yeah, we have to reassure when we whenever we show pictures of the toxicoides, we have to reassure everyone that they're only nectarivorous and they yeah, don't actually they don't suck blood. But they're pretty they're pretty intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like mosquitoes feed on nectar, but they feed also on tree sap, uh, honeydew. Um, so yeah, it's there's also a mosquito that like uh, that feeds on the the. the regurgitated material of ants, right? Like yeah. specifically That's like crazy. induces the ant to regurgitate. Like, so when they when ants meet up with each other, they kind of pass on nutrients to each other. Um, and apparently there's a mosquito, right? Um, mm-hmm. That kind of like 
induces the ant to do that. I guess it tricks it because it's it's blind, right? And then and then just takes the the whatever regurgitated material of the ant. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. Well, I know what I'm doing with the rest of my afternoon. I'm going to be Googling the hell out of that ant species. That's amazing. And, the you know, based on what you just said, whether they're biting mosquitoes or they're not biting mosquitoes, most of them are visiting or utilizing the sugary resources of a plant in one form or another. So it's not even like this insignificant one-off here and there. This is a significant portion of mosquitoes are doing a lot of flower visitation. Uh, yes. I guess the question then becomes how effective are they as pollinators overall or is it very specific scenarios in which they are uh, doing some benefit for the plant? Yeah. I think the general consensus, uh, I remember there was a uh, nature kind of comments, I think, uh, section by Dr. Inoue um, mentioning that uh, like um, he was correcting a previous like article discussing how mosquitoes are important possibly as pollinators, but he was definitely saying that like, no, they're morphology, and they're, they're probably not pollinators, but more nectar robbers. Yeah. And I, I would probably stand by that same claim as well, too, especially from, yeah. But the thing is that... It's, it's hard to... It's, yeah. Uh, working with mosquitoes, usually people are focusing on, they feed on blood, they transmit parasites, so they don't really care about, you know, the other, yeah. you know, way, and the, the thing... And male, mosquitoes are, are. Yeah, male mosquitoes are completely understudied exactly. as well. Yeah. So, you know, they might visit more flowers than we think, and they might pollinate more flowers than we think, but it's just like probably know. understudied. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's about uh, 10 species that have been found to be pollinated by mosquitoes. Hmm. Total. Um, so, yeah. So it does happen, uh, and it sounds to me like, you know, it's typical with a lot of themes in science is that there's one overarching theme that really gets all of the funding and the interest in the research and then these other questions just seem auxiliary to you know curing disease which totally understandable why we'd be very interested in mosquitoes as disease vectors but uh you know to give a straightforward answer when you read a, an article or a pop science article well we could get rid of mosquitoes and we wouldn't really feel any ecological effects from that i understand where that comes from but uh, it sounds like it's too complex of an issue and we don't know enough at this point to really certainly come down on any side of that argument yeah i think it's tough but i also think that um so this was interesting it came up in a, a class of, uh, in our class last last year with some students they, they brought this point up but I think the important thing to note note that like these um, disease carrying vectors and are also very invasive. So when you think about the control, which is kind of like I think a lot of right now when people are talking about the um, the RNAi, the male mosquitoes, the sterilized males, um, uh, and that dampen the population. But that's a very like species specific, targeted I think um, way to approach this thing. So. I think if, if I think it's very important to be aware of the mosquito ecology, uh, knowing yeah. which ones are endemic and which ones aren't, and then kind of, and then see which ones are actually carrying. If it's a newly, so it's a newly transmitted disease, it's probably more, most likely, you know, correlated with a arrival of a new mosquito. Probably, yeah. um, I mean, it could also be a spillover from one species to another. But I mean, I think yeah, I think it's very important to be aware of the. the there are mosquitoes, but there there's many species of them, so it, it's important that, like, yeah, we can probably utilize these techniques to still remove the invasive um, you know, mosquitoes and stuff like that and have a good effect overall on reducing disease, um, disease prevalence and stuff like that. And mosquitoes are, like, very important, you know, in the ecosystem. They feel like, you know, they're very useful for birds, uh, like frogs yeah. and, you know, a lot of 
uh, other animals depend on mosquitoes. Um, but the thing is that if if you have a better understanding of their olfaction and the way they are attracted, yeah. say to human, but also to plants, because we know that they need them to survive, then maybe you can, you know, build a super efficient trap. Uh, you know, this kind of stuff. So it's also very important to study their olfaction, not only in the like host seeking behavior, but also the like plant seeking behavior mm -hmm. very important. And I think this is what we are um, trying to do here. To really get the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And that's I think the way science should progress. You know, when you hear people saying, Why are we funding that kind of research? Well, you don't really know what's gonna come out of an inquiry. You really don't. And to stifle any form of science is not valuable is just kind of like shooting yourself in the foot in the long run because you never know where or what could come in handy someday. Not to say that's the only reason to do science either, but you made some great points there. Um, and on the mosquito olfaction point, uh, neurologically speaking or whatever, however you would speak towards that, you know, mosquitoes being able to detect flowers and to be able to, to detect a, a mammalian or a bird feeding opportunity, that's probably very different pathways or channels in the brain of a mosquito, I'd assume, right? We don't smell like flowers unless we douse yeah. ourselves. <laughs> that's an excellent point. And, and we, we don't, don't know. Yeah, we're currently <laughs> investigating that yeah. as well. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Yeah. Wow. Um, How do you go about even starting to try to understand something like that. I mean, without getting too technical, although that might be asking too much, but, uh, you know, how do you set up and understand like, Oh, that mosquito really seems to like that scent. Cause I've always heard, you know, some people are more tasty than others. And I certainly feel like I'm one of those. You James? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, um, basically the way the mosquitoes are smelling, uh, is by using their antennae. Uh, so it's basically the nose of the mosquito, right? Um, and so what we do is to use electrophysiology to record the, um, basically the electrical activity of this antennae. Um, and we send some chemicals and we basically just measure the variation in this electrical activity and we say like, oh yeah, you know, the mosquito is responding and is able to detect this odor, but not this one. Um, so we are doing that with the, the scent of different uh, of, um, Platantera orchids that we studied, so six of them, right? mm -hmm. um, and we were like, oh, so they know how to detect this chemical, but not this one, and this way you can just, you know, basically, you know that they are detecting it, mm -hmm. but if you know to, if you want to know if they are, like, attracted or repelled, then you need to do some behavior, and this is what you are doing. Yeah, so we would do some, uh, like, YMAs assays, where we would give them a choice, so once, once, Chloe processes the EEG, we, so EEG, we also call it, it GCEEG, so uh, a GC mass spec separates out the chemicals that we put in as it separates it out, and then it flows into the, it's coupled to the EEG that Chloe just mentioned. So then we can like find from real samples, like what are the chemicals that they're really detecting, and then we have to pair that, but that only, like Chloe already said about the detection, so we really need to do these Y-maze assays to kind of then use like those chemicals, you know, either single them out or make them make a synthetic uh, mixtures of them. Change the concentration. Yeah, with the concentrations. And there's a lot to play around with. Through many assays, we can figure out which ones that are like, like are, is detecting that, not detecting, is showing the attraction, attraction to the oh, odor or even repul repulsion to the odor, depending on what you're, what you're looking at. Wow, so you literally pull the scents out of the flower, you analyze them chemically, and then you vary the concentration levels and see what the mosquitoes... That's... that's intense. <laughs> that's a lot of... it's a blending of a lot of great sciences. 
Yeah, it's super interdisciplinary, yeah. yeah. And it's really cool to be able just to, you know, you cut the head of the mosquito, you mount it between two electrodes, <laughs> yeah. you send the chemicals to the prep, and you're like, boop, 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 detecting, not detecting, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. So these electro-antenograms are like, you know, the mosquito is not moving at all, still alive though, yeah. but then, you know, moving to the behavior and like, you know, releasing a mosquito and just like, you know, seeing it flying around and, you know, looking for the other, I uh, think it's really cool to, yeah. you know, to go from, like, very basic, uh, not basic, but getting from a big understanding between the detection and then towards the, the full behavior of the mosquito. I think it's really cool. Yeah, I, I find it very fun to also, because, like, I like I don't have a, like, a, like the chemistry background I learned was the context of uh, chemical ecology. So, mm-hmm. like, every time I do a new project or something new comes up, like, I always learn like so many new things about not like not outside of biology as well, just because it's just all together in the system, and you need to have a comprehensive understanding really mm-hmm. to ask ask good questions. I think so. It, I'm learning a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's also, um, it, it's also a, a main or like an important point mm-hmm. of this lab is that you are getting like different techniques and try to have like. A big, you know, set of techniques that you can use to understand one system or, you know, one thing. And I think that's that's pretty cool to do that. And you know, having like different people working on this project, we're able to combine all the skills, you know, and yeah, in the background, yeah, yeah, a good idea of what's going on. Yeah, and it really just it increases your toolbox to attack a discipline and a system and get as most thorough understanding as you can out of it. And it's you really if you don't know that you can detect certain things or how to detect certain things, then what use of it is to you? And you know that's why having a diverse array of people and backgrounds coming into the lab and talking about it is is good. Now you mentioned there's some taxa that are mosquito pollinated, but you guys focus on one really cool example, uh, an orchid, something near and dear to my heart. Tell us a little bit about this species, just as a plant in general, and then we'll work towards what the whole cool pile, uh, pollination ecology is all about. I guess so the name of the orchid is Plantanthro uh, optostata. It is um, the common name. It's a blunt-leaved blunt rain orchid, and as it's a pretty small, pretty small ant plant overall. Maybe max, max is at, at like 20 centimeters, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe. And then, like, but usually most of them are like much smaller than yeah. that. And they can have up to, like, maybe 5 to, like, 7. I've seen about 17 flowers on, on them. They're perennials, so they go they go away for the season. The roots are still there. Um, and they have this uh, very uh, characteristic one leaf um, out of the platanthera. So that's really a very nice way to um, identify them, even though you don't see the flower stalk sometimes. If you just, it's just one leaf sticking out, and it's this oblong leaf, and it's really, really cool. Um, yeah, and they have these green flowers. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's sometimes it's very hard to find them. You know, yeah. when you are looking for them, you're like, okay, so this is a very small plant. It's green, uh, <laughs> and it doesn't smell anything. Okay, yeah. we are, you know, yeah. it, it can be hard. Um, but yeah, and the smell is very really light. Mm-hmm. Even if you you know put your nose next to it, you're like mm, very light, light smell. Yeah, uh, it smells pretty good, I think. Um, and they also bloom for like very short period of time. It's almost like three weeks. Yeah, and they're all they're all, actually so uh, habitat. I guess we should mention is mm-hmm. that they're no they're located near like these swampy. But not like uh, standing water. They're still flowing fresh streams. So isn't it more like um, transient streams that are formed from snowmelt. 
and through so like where they're located like the water will like throughout the season will eventually recede and but the plants when they're blooming they're kind of on the on these banks of these temporary water pools and those are essentially like perfect for mm -hmm. uh, mosquito larvae so they're really like cohabitating the mosquitoes and uh yeah so we, we think essentially when the mosquitoes come out like the flowers are like there. next to it yeah. yeah and they also live on the, the trees they don't like yeah, direct, but if you go to the north like alaska um they like they grow up in like open tundra so mm -hmm. it's very different um, i think it's also a matter of like the temperature of the you know ambient air and this kind of stuff so they are very sensitive to temperature yeah the rain yeah, goes all the way from like alaska and then to like like northern washington mm -hmm. and then like some higher elevation areas of like exactly. idaho and stuff like so they need to be higher up and and shaded area. Shaded area, yeah. yeah. So we're really working with the, like the southern part of the, the geographic range mm -hmm. of these guys right now. They go all the way east to like Manitoba and Churchill. Like previous research has been done there with these guys. So yeah, and they, they pretty much like span mm -hmm. North America, yeah. the Canadian, like above Canada too. So that's awesome. And it, I mean, all of these habitats you mentioned, everything, it, it's like you really can't find the plant without finding mosquitoes in some context either. It just seems, like you said, this they're perfectly timed cohabitating with one another. Uh, and I'm guessing that that makes sense if you need a mosquito to pollinate your flowers, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, what's interesting from the also previous literature, so the, the research, research we mentioned from like Manitoba as well included, um, is that showed that like although they're pollinated by mosquitoes, there seems to be some level of specificity, yeah. right? Um, that even with, there's a complex of mosquitoes, but there's like a specific, specific run, right? <laughs> yeah, a few like bunch of mosquitoes have been found with the pollinia attachment. So they are like, you know, suspected to be like, you know, more involved uh, in the pollination of, of this orchid. And interestingly, um, Two species of moths also have been found with the pollinia and visiting the flowers. Um, these guys are nocturnal, and so maybe you know doing yeah. observation during the night would be great because yeah. you know probably some other species are visiting that we don't know. Yeah. Um, so it's an hypothesis. Um, but yeah, several species of mosquitoes. So they belong to the Oclerotatus, so they are related to Aedes mosquitoes. Like Aedes genus. So it's like Canadensis, Communis, Increpidus. Um, like a bunch of different species. Um, they are kind of big mosquitoes. Yeah, they're pretty big um, compared to people generally. And these mosquitoes are called snowmelt mosquitoes just because the egg is gonna like be under the snow for like the whole winter uh, and then they come out once the, the snow is melting. Um, they emerge, the larvae feeds, you know, with the ponds and then they they emerge as adults. Yeah. So they're like totally different from like the tropical like they mosquitoes that yeah, that people think about. So it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. They are way bigger. Wow. <laughs> and they are Which helps, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, they bite a lot. With physical <laughs> attachment. Yeah, yeah there's a, a whole subset of challenges, I, I assume, studying biting species of mosquitoes and just being victims of your own right. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, especially where we do the field work. It's like it can run to like 100 per yeah. night, but you need to be like long sleeves. And you know a head net and like mosquito net and <laughs> yeah it's done. yeah yeah it's, it gets it's hot yeah. you need to like what you're doing <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, we always romanticize the, the life of a field technician or a field researcher, but in the moment, I've never cursed or been more angry at times when you're just hot and sweaty and being bit. You can get attacked by grouse or cows or, yeah. you know... Yeah, there's, um, we have a lot of fascinating stories. I think, especially you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's some. Yeah, I think I saw a bobcat that was trying to stalk me this year <laughs> when I was crouched on the ground observing the flowers, which is interesting. Jeez, <laughs> really fun. Yeah. No, and that's the that's the other side of field uh, field work is you always have really awesome stories because of th just the law of large numbers. You spend that many hours in the woods, you're gonna see some weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I found I found a year this past field seed. Like last week I went out to the field and I found like a, a dried piece of some animal's ear and oh, it was just like Oh not a not a human ear. <laughs> no 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 sorry sorry yeah, yeah it was like a I think it was like a deer, a deer? or something. Yeah. I'm not quite sure but it was like so I was like wow it's, I don't see this <laughs> we saw so okay. bones. Yeah. You know, because there where we are going there are like bears and wolves uh, and moose and we're like oh wow <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> hey, kudos to you guys for going to look at an orchid. <laughs> it's that's, what's up. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's that's fantastic. Now, okay, this this plant, this orchid, obviously has a, a relationship with with these mosquitoes. How or what do you guys hypothesize? At least I don't know how in depth. Uh, you, we understand the pollination ecology at this point yet, but what is this? Uh, what's it doing to attract a mosquito? Uh, is it visual, or is it more the olfactory, or a nice combination of both? I generally don't think of mosquitoes as visual predators, but I don't know anything about mosquitoes. So, there's some research that's, that's shown that like mosquitoes definitely use um, vision, vision as a um, as as a cue, and it's a short range cue. So you know, it's like few few meters max, and yeah. like maybe less than that uh, for the plants. Mm -hmm. mm. So they are probably using olfaction mainly. Um, They're studies on old, like, odor-gated, like, exactly. visual cues. Like, once they smell CO2, they can see stuff. Um, they'll, they'll go towards contrasted material uh, stuff um, to mm -hmm. check it out as hosts. So I guess it might be something like that. Like maybe the, the scent of the orchid kind of primes the, the, yeah. the mosquito to be like, okay, there's an orchid around. Long range, and then short range. Yeah, range. definitely. So it's definitely a probably, we would think it's a Equipment. combination of both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, now, you said you can detect some scent, right, Clay? Uh, what, you said it smells kind of nice to us, but when you fire up those volatiles under whatever you know machine you're using to look at them, um, what are you detecting? What kind of chemicals is this plant producing, broadly speaking? I don't know how specific we can get, but... Uh, you know, what, what is this chemical concoction that mosquitoes find so alluring? So mosquitoes are going to use like, like quite a large range of odors um, that they are responding to. Um, and some are very like common in plants, such as nonanal or octanal, so this like citrusy uh, odor. So this is something that mosquitoes are going to be responding to. And I think this is, you know, an odor that we also tested mm -hmm. for the behavior and they were uh, attracted to it. Um, so these kind of chemicals are like, probably used by, by the mosquitoes to, to locate the flowers. Um, they have also some very specific chemicals. If we compare with, like, I don't know, let's say Platantera stricta or Eurunensis, these guys share different chemicals, but they are also very specific ones mm -hmm. and that they only emit. Uh, the abundance of the chemicals is going to vary with the species too. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, but they, they respond to quite a like large number of chemicals. Mm -hmm. 
So it's got quite an arsenal at its disposal, and little tweaks on that system can result in entirely new species-to-species -species interactions. Um, you know, famously like with the, the bee orchids in Europe, where one tweak on a chemical suddenly you have a new male bee interested in your, your fake females. But, um, you know, I'd read a couple of years back, I think maybe two or three years ago, about an orchid up that way uh, producing something akin to human body odor. Mm -hmm. Um, is that in your system or has that been confirmed? I, I, I don't remember actually reading a paper, but someone was presenting on it. Uh, it. Can you elaborate on that maybe? So if you take a chemical such as nonanal, for example, this is a chemical that we emit via our skin. Just, you know, sweat is just, you know, we have this floral bouquet ourselves, right? We emit about 400 chemicals um, via the sweat and, you know, um, so this is a chemical that we can find also on, on our uh, in our body center. Yeah, so yeah, it's hard to say though, like if it's really like mimicking human scent or anything like that. I mean, because like, like Chloe mentioned, like the the the, the individual and specific perception of a smell is like not only the composition, like what's there, but that also works. like the yeah the concentration. So, mm -hmm. like yeah, like I mean, like we actually serve uh, like the octanols, like which which is which is. A, the mushroom scent that a lot of people identify, but we have that too. But we don't, you know, if you come, if you grab a portobello mushroom from the in market and you want to compare it with yourself, you don't quite smell exactly like it, right? So <laughs> I think, yeah, <laughs> maybe I don't know. Do I smell like that? I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I think like we share chemicals, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the the because it's it's an emergent property, right? I think mm -hmm. what a, what a scent is. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not like a, a the system would be primed in any sort of way for humans to have any sort of selective pressure on the pollination system of an orchid that you probably evolved m thousands, if not millions, of years before any human came around. Mm -hmm. exactly. and, yeah, and also another point is that we've seen male mosquitoes come to our orchids. So mm -hmm. and males don't host seek, right? So yeah, there. I, I would hypothesize that like there is like both a female and, I mean, a female and male. So it's not really tricking the female into like going, like this is a host and it's looking for blood and it just ends up in nectar. I don't think that's what's going on. I mean, I think it's more like there's this shared behavior attraction yeah. or something by the males and females and they're definitely seeking the nectar. Yeah. Uh, I think it's definitely not, it's, it might be, I mean, it's hard to say, but I, I would, because of the males approaching, I, I don't, I wouldn't hypothesize that. No. And especially when we did feed work and we were observing the both females and males on the plants, we were just like right next to it, and the females could have you know come and you know bite us, but they just didn't care. They were like yeah. focusing on getting the nectar uh, only, and they didn't care about us. So we're like, hmm, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, there's definitely like they're focused yeah. on it, you know, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Huh. That's a really cool thing that can only come from the powers of observation in the wild. That's why being outside as a scientist is so damn important. Uh, and it's good to know that like, if I'm walking around and I smell something, I'm not going to be like checking my pits. It's not going to be the orchid. It's definitely me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, a lot of this, like I mentioned, and you guys have definitely talked about, is just the sitting in the field and watching and observing flowers for a long period of time. Um, you know, are you taking videos or just counting? You know, what's a, what is a pollination survey like for those that think it sounds one thing and in reality it's always a little different? It's a combination of both. Um, I've, I've used some GoPro, uh, GoPro cameras actually to make these observations and they're very good for that. Um, 
and also, of course, direct observations as well. It's really nice to see uh, the, the behavior in real time. And it's, it's yeah, I remember watching directly for the first time was last year. I didn't get, get a chance to see, I didn't see one this year, which is interesting. But last year, it was a, I saw a male come in and, like, pick out, a, like, literally the polynia attached to this night, like, new male mosquito. And I was like, wow, that is, That's really cool. it was awesome to kind of see that attachment and also kind of... Yeah, it was just in there, in there, like there, you know, like the mosquitoes take a very long time apparently to like feed on the nectar, and, and also I've seen some of them get stuck in the flower too, which is another interesting huh. thing that I don't know what to what to comment on, but it was very interesting. We've seen, I've definitely seen male mosquitoes stuck in the flower, awesome. and they're like stuck in there, and they're like, with their heads are stuck into the orchid, and then they're, I would just kind of poke it. I would like, touch the male mosquito and it's just like it's trying to fly away but like it's stuck and so it's just beating its wings and it's kind of a comical sound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to, fun to see. Oh, that's wild. That is so cool. And and again with orchids, it, it being so mechanically specific, having to get that pollinia attachment in the right spot, it is a special moment when you get to observe that in the wild because you know, you're observing a step in the evolution of such a complex but yet totally natural mechanism uh, just play out. And that's the entire reproductive effort, at least from the male perspective, for that orchid too, which, you know, it's it's uh, it's a very awesome system to be able to sit down and watch and be intimate with in that way. Yeah, that's right. Especially, like, when you see a mosquito, like, landing uh, on the flower and just, like, you know, pushing the head to get access to the spur, which, you know, contains the nectar. Uh, it's really cool because then you see, you know, the pollinia moving and then, you know, they can just fall and get stuck to the eye of the mosquito because at the base of each pollinium, you have a, a sticky pad. Uh, and so this is the area which is getting stuck to the eye of the mosquito. And so this way, when the mosquito is visiting the next flower, mm -hmm. it's going to transfer some pollen uh, to the stigmata and then, you know, the pollination occurs. Um, I like. I love how also like and like, you know, it has to be specific. You yeah. know, like the attachment because yeah, of what the perfect combination, yeah. perfect matching between mosquito morphology and flower morphology, all the thing to occur. Yeah. So we're also investigating that right now, mm -hmm. and it's a uh, very pretty excited to see because um, it's it's a really cool system in, in terms of that too. Like we can apply these canonical uh, ideas of pollination that uh, other people have already observed and tested with like moths, butterflies and bees, and then like take the, that idea and the, adapt it for mosquitoes. And it's a, it's a really fun, fun to see a show that like mosquitoes do the same thing too. Yeah. yeah. Especially because in the field, so we, we, we found the mosquitoes that other people found before mm -hmm. uh, that are, you know, uh, have the, the pollinia attached, but we also found mosquitoes that have this very long proboscis. So this is the basically the straw that they are using to take the, the nectar. And so we were like, you know, we are wondering like, are these guys just like not matching their morphology is not matching the morphology of the flower. Do they just like steal the nectar from yeah. the plant? Uh, you know this kind of stuff. So this is this is something that we are investigating right now, but it's yeah. it's very exciting. Yeah, so you have this this match with specific mosquitoes that are just the right size and weight to pick up the pollinia, ones that get stuck maybe because they're not the right size and weight, and now you have also cheaters entering into the system. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Again, and it's all from powers of observation and seeing this play out over and over again 
over hours of time and, and just being out there. That's really great. So you mentioned a little bit, but what is on the horizon for your lab? It sounds like you both have some great questions to ask, no shortage of things to be working on. Um, you know, what are some of the next steps you're going to be taking in the next year or two? Well, um, just focusing on uh, this, uh, this study and uh, morphology. morphology. We'll be doing more behavior as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just kind of like building off of this. There, be, yeah, like that's the coolest thing about this is that like they're they're Clay mentioned like other species of uh, plants have pollinated by mosquitoes, but I th- with this one though, like because it's an orchid, I think it adds an, another layer to the questions that we can ask, like the morphology question. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I yeah, then it's it's gonna. I feel like it's gonna be very interesting because there's a we know that there's this interaction that we can rely on in terms of observations and in terms of bringing, like testing stuff in the lab. It'll definitely just give a whole, I guess, like a like whole new aspect of mosquito biology that people have never thought about. And I think it's going to be, it's going to be fun. It's yeah. going to be really new things to encounter and new things to learn. So, especially in the area where we are, you know, doing our work, we have some other Placentera orchids around, mm-hmm. um, but they are also like around mosquitoes. So we're like, you know, why do these guys don't get pollinated by mosquitoes then? Uh, is it just because they are like in more open areas, so it's too dry for the mosquitoes that are, you know, very sensitive to desiccation? Is it a matter of the size of the flower? Um, or like, you know, we don't know, so this is something that would be cool. Yeah. Um, and Rio is conducting a, a lot of experiments in the field, also with like pollination, um, mm-hmm. inclusion and exclusion. Yeah, like how important the poll- are like how important are the mosquitoes to the pollination, because some orchids can definitely sell. So we were also looking at that too. And yeah, it's interesting. And I also find it um, I, like uh, recently I, I visited the uh, Northwest Orchid Society and. It's very interesting that like I'm like it's this project finds itself in this not only a niche field but in two niche societies. You know, there's like mm-hmm. the kind of like disease vector ecology people, but also there's the orchid the biology yeah. pollination side, Lightning. and just kind of like it's fun to like like I mean I'm gonna I'm excited to like kind of visit both groups of people with this uh, with this project mm-hmm. yeah, to see what how the response is going to be. Yeah, kind of getting out of that academic bubble that is all too easy to fall into. That's really great. And uh, it's really special to find labs that are so well at doing it and can communicate it very well to the public. I mean, nothing you guys said today should go over the heads of most folks that are interested. So well done on, A, collaborating, bridging gaps, and also communicating your science uh, in a way that we can all enjoy. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thanks. (laughs) So if anyone wants to find out more, which I guarantee you people will, uh, how do they find out more about the work you both are doing? So there is the, um, maybe a lab website. Mm-hmm. So it's like Riffel Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just Google us on Riffel Lab. Yeah, Riffel Lab. Maybe. And we have the... That's R-I-F-F-E-L-L. Um, and, uh, I have a website. I'm talking a little bit about our kids on there. Just my name, chloe.lander.com something like that. I think that. <laughs> yeah, no, people, people I can send the, the link to you. Yeah, send me the link and I'll put all this up on the uh, page for this this episode. But I thank you both for taking the time. You guys are doing some fascinating work uh, and uh, in a very amazing system that is near and dear to my heart, Orchids. So thank you for taking the time. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Adios. Bye-bye. How cool is that? 
I really want to see that pollination play out. I want to see the mosquito land on the flower, dive into the nectar spur, pick up the pollinia, and fly away. I bet that is so cool. And again, it all comes from a lot of attention to detail and strict observation periods in the natural habitat. What better way to generate hypotheses and different questions to test in a lab? I thank them both for sitting down and talking with us. They were great communicators of their science. It's so refreshing to sit down with grad students and postdocs that are really good at talking about what they do in a way that everyone can understand. There's no need to bury everyone in graphs and charts if you don't have to. And uh, yeah, science is that much richer for having two people like that around. I wish them the best of luck in their future, and it sounds like there's no shortage of questions in their system to keep asking, so keep it up. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Again, indefensiveplants.com. Check out the videos. We have a new video section up on the website if you don't want to go through YouTube. Either way, see what we got going on. This week's episode is Suburban Botany, and we got a lot of really cool videos planned for the future, so keep checking in, and the best way to do that is to hit the subscribe button. Also, review and subscribe to this podcast on whatever podcatcher you're using to listen to it. It really helps. So thank you to everyone who's listened. Keep checking back in. we got a lot of great interviews coming up. Uh, I'm super excited. So, yeah. Other than that, I hope you all have a great week. This is Matt signing out. Adios.